Let's turn this morning to, again, once again, the book of Philippians in chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, and we'll read the opening eight verses once again of this chapter. It's good to see all who have come out to God's house, and for those who are joining with us, visiting, and also those who are online as well. It's good to have you part of our congregation this morning. So Philippians chapter 2, and we'll commence our reading at verse 1. Let's hear the word of our God. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Amen. And we will look to the Lord for His help. So let's pray. Let's pray the Lord will make it profitable, that we'll not just watch the minutes tick past until it's time to leave and get back to our own homes and our Sunday dinner. But let's ask the Lord to draw near and to speak to our hearts and to challenge us and comfort us and instruct us even through His Word. Let's, let's pray together as God's people. Father, in heaven we bow before Thee, and we come and we thank and bless Thee for Thy Son. We rejoice, O God, that we have a mediator. We thank Thee for Him, and we do pray, O God, that as we come to consider Him, Lord, we pray that Thou would send Thy Spirit. We ask of Thee, Lord, we ask of Thee for the sending of the Holy Ghost. And Lord, often we ask, but we do not receive by faith, and yet now we receive by faith, because your hand is outstretched in thy promises to give the Spirit to them that asked him. And so, Lord, I ask, and not only do I ask, but I take the blessed infilling of the Spirit of God. I thank thee for him, and I thank thee he is the one who will enable me to preach the word, to speak well of Jesus Christ. He is the one who applies truth, who opens not only the sacred, uh, the sacred Scripture, but He opens the heart to receive truth. So, Lord, we look to Thee. We lift our eyes heavenward above any man. And, Lord, we pray that Thou would bless the Word and shut us in with Thyself. And may glory be brought to Thy dear Son, for we ask these things in His lovely and His precious name. Amen. Once again this morning, we'll turn, turn our attention to this portion of Scripture in Philippians chapter 2. F.B. Meyer, in his devotional commentary of Philippians, he said of verses 5 to 8, and I quote, In the whole range of Scripture, this paragraph stands in almost unapproachable and unexampled splendor. There is no passage where the extremes of our Savior's majesty and humility are brought into such abrupt connection. Guided by the Spirit of God, the Apostle opens the golden compass of his imagination and faith. 
and places one point upon the supernal throne of eternal God and the other upon the cross of shame where Jesus died. End quote. It is a passage of God's Word so wonderful and glorious in its composition that all the hallmarks of the divine author, the Holy Ghost, can be easily discerned for they are words which testify of Christ. Now, while they are theological in their doctrine, they are not simply included in this letter by the apostle for the increase of knowledge or to refute some heretical notion among that local assembly of believers. Rather, there was a very practical purpose for their inclusion. And let me remind you of that. There is a theme, there's a certain thrust that Paul has been developing over the previous verses, starting really in verse 27 of chapter 1. That theme is unity. He has written about uh, the means of unity, or the motives of unity, the marks of unity, the means of unity. And now in verses 5 to 8, he writes to them about the model, the Lord Jesus Christ. He sets before them the one who is the supreme model of humility. Yes, an example who they are to follow, but also it is by consideration of what Christ did for them that any self-importance or, or pride which hinders unity would be removed. That's why he writes to them about the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, humility is key to unity. And where there is Christian unity, there is the blessing of the Lord and all the associated consequences of that. For example, life forevermore, salvation, and the spiritual enrichment of God's people with no admixture of sorrow with it, as we read in Proverbs chapter 10 and the verse 22. Now, how do I know that humility is key to unity? Well, just remember, the Son of God humbled Himself in order that we may be one, even as He is with the Father. Now, in order for us to understand something of the condescension of the Son of God, we must first consider the heights from which He came. The heights from which He came. And that was the first point that we thought about the last time as we began looking at verses 6, 7, and 8 under the general heading of Alexander McLaren's sermon, The Descent of the Word. And so the first point really was based on verse 6. And we noticed there the heights from which he came. We looked at the eternality of Christ from the words, who being. His goings forth have been of old, even from the days of eternity. We also noticed the essence of Christ from the words, in the form of God. As a son, he possessed the very nature of God, for he was God. And then in the last place, we thought about the equality of Christ as God the Son. And by the way, the cults, they hate that title of Him. They're happy enough for you to say that He is the Son of God, but not God the Son. But He is God, and He has equality of glories and rights and prerogatives with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. And that's where we need to start. We need to start in the heavenlies of the heights of glory, if we're ever to get a grasp of the condescension of the Son of God. Now, this morning, I want us to continue looking at the descent of the Word in verse 7 under the second main heading, 
the depths to which he descended. So we thought about the heights from which he came, and this morning we're with that little conjunction, but at the start of verse 7, we're going to consider the depths to which he descended. Now, there are three clauses in verse 7, and each one is going to be the point, a point this morning. I couldn't alliterate it for the life of me. I couldn't make it rhyme. So there'll be none of that this morning. I'm just going to take each little clause, and that's going to be our point this morning as we think about the depths to which he descended. Now, firstly, let us think about, but made himself of no reputation. But made himself of no reputation. Now, here is a phrase that has caused much discussion, and it gave rise to what is known as the kenosis theory of the mid-19th century. Now, in the Greek, the words translated, made himself of no reputation, are two words, and some have translated those words as emptied himself emptied himself. However, this has led liberal theologians to suggest that something was subtracted or taken away from the Son of God by His incarnation. Now, if the four other times that this verb emptied, or it's a, it's a Greek word, is used elsewhere in the New Testament, it is always translated in a figurative manner. B.B. Warfield, he said that to translate the words emptied himself, it leads to the thought that our Lord was once God, but he became instead man. That is not the case. Paul was teaching that though he was God, he had become also man by his incarnation. Another way that we could read these words to avoid the error of an emptying of sort is this, he took no account of himself. He made himself of no reputation. He took no account of what he was. Now, since these words have reference to the one described in verse 6, one whom we have seen is, is co-eternal, co-essential, and co-equal with the Father, then what does it mean that he made himself of no reputation? Well, it does not mean that he emptied himself of his deity. He did not give up his divine attributes. Some have suggested that the Son of God committed divine suicide at his incarnation. They suggest that he gave up his Godhead and did not take into union with himself a human soul, but rather became a human soul and thus ceased to be God. Now, there's others, and they suggest a partial emptying, that he only gave up certain divine attributes like his omniscience or his omnipotence or omnipresence. And yet the Scripture reveals that in the days of his flesh, he still possessed those divine attributes. He did not stop being God, nor was there any part of his essential divine nature given up. None of it. He couldn't cut off some piece of who he was, because as God he is unchangeable. If he ceased to be God, he could not be the mediator between God and man, and therefore salvation would have been impossible. Now, what does it mean then? If it doesn't mean that he emptied himself of divine attributes, what does it mean that he made himself of no reputation or took no account of himself? Well, one commentator answered like this. Instead of asserting his rights to the expression of his deity, 
the essence of his deity, our Lord waived his rights to that expression. In other words, he stripped himself of the expression of his deity, but not the possession of it. He restricted the outward manifestation of his deity by his incarnation, by clothing himself with a true humanity. He was like a king, temporarily clothing himself in the garb of a peasant while still remaining a king, even though it was not apparent. This is what it means. And we want to look at it in a little more detail and notice what the Son of God was willing to lay aside for our sakes, what He took no account of. Firstly, He laid aside His heavenly glory. He laid aside His heavenly glory. He took no account of this as He came into the world. And we know that from John 17 and verse 5. And Christ there prays, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. He gave up the glory of heaven for the filth of this world. He gave up the worship and the adoration of the holy angels for the spittle and the curses of men. He gave up all the shining brilliance of heaven for the dark prison for where he was kept before his birth, before his death. He laid aside the honor, the happiness, and everything of that blessed condition which he enjoyed with the Father and the Spirit in eternity. His glory was veiled, except for that brief moment upon the Mount of Transfiguration, when by the voluntary act of him laying aside, hiding his glory, the radiance of his brilliance shone forth as the brightness of the sun. He laid aside his heavenly glory for you and me. But secondly, he laid aside his independent authority. He gave up the voluntary exercise of his own will, and he submitted himself to the Father as he became the mediator of the covenant. He was obedient. You read in Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 8, I saw Wonderful and remarkable statement concerning this. It says there, Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And it's for this reason that he prayed in the garden of Gethsemane to the Father, Not my will, but thine be done. He laid aside his own independent authority and was willing to be obedient, though he be the eternal Son of God. We live in a culture that hates authority. And yet he who possessed supreme authority as sovereign God was willing to lay that aside so that we would be one. Remember, never lose sight of the practical import of Paul's words. There's a reason why Paul is laying out all this rich theological doctrine concerning Jesus Christ and therefore, shouldn't we also submit to authority, biblical authority, authority that is in agreement to God's Word for the sake of unity? You see, that type of humble spirit that is willing to submit, it fosters and it nourishes unity among the brethren. He laid aside his independent authority. But thirdly, he laid aside the voluntary use of his attributes, 
his divine attributes, that is, and I've already touched on that. Now, that doesn't mean that he stopped being omniscient, for example. It tells us there in John chapter 2, in the verse 25, that he needed no man to testify what was in man, because he knew the hearts of all men. It doesn't mean that he stopped being omnipresent. Because he said to Nathaniel, even when Christ was not where Nathaniel was sitting under the tree, that I saw thee. So if it doesn't mean that, what does it mean? That he'd set aside the voluntary use of his divine attributes. Well, it means that he limited the independent use of certain divine attributes and prerogatives while on earth. He did not use his deity for his own personal comfort or to avoid having to face the hardships and the trials and temptations of normal everyday life. Christ did not use His divine power to solve a problem for His humanity. Now, one example of this is in His temptations. When He was hungry, the devil tempted Him to turn the stones into bread in Matthew chapter 4 and the verse 4. Another example is when He was in the Garden of Gethsemane and and well, there was Peter drawing a sword, and, and the Lord rebuked him, and he told him that if he so wished, he could call for twelve legions of angels to set him free. But Christ, he, he set aside the voluntary use of his divine attributes, not so that he could live a life of ease, but that he could enter into a life of suffering, trial, sorrow, and grief. It needed to be. This is a wonderful example of self-control and self-sacrifice. Imagine you having all the power, all power, and a problem come into your life. Wouldn't you just, with a click of your fingers, make it go away? You were hungry. You had no money. You had absolutely nothing. Hordes of uh, the, the, the Roman legions were coming to get you and to lock you up, and yet you had all power. Wouldn't you click your fingers? Someone was sick, sorrowing, you would do it. But Christ, He set that aside. He laid aside the voluntary use of His divine attributes in order that He would enter into a life of suffering that His atonement that He made would be a suffering atonement because you and I suffer under the curse of sin. And so He set aside the voluntary use of His divine attributes for our sake. Fourthly, he laid aside his personal riches. You read in 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 9, but though he was rich yet for our sakes, he became poor that we, ye through his poverty, might be rich. He is the creator and proprietor of all things, not only on earth, but in the universe and in heaven. I was reading that there's one asteroid, and it's called Devira. And it's estimated to be worth, with all the precious metals in it, it's estimated to be worth 27 quintillion U.S. dollars. One asteroid. That is 27 followed by 18 zeros. 27 quintillion U.S. dollars, that is much more than the whole wealth of the world many times over. And yet Christ, as creator and proprietor of all things, 
It belongs to him all. As the Son of God, it is all his by right. And yet, he gave it up and he entered into abject poverty so that you and I might be heirs of God and the possessors of an eternal inheritance. He owned everything. But when he came to this earth, he had to borrow everything from man. He had to borrow a place to be born. He had to borrow a boat to preach from. He had to borrow a place to sleep. He had to borrow an ass to ride upon. He had to borrow an upper room for the Last Supper. He had to borrow a tomb to be laid in after his death. Though he owned it all. What an example. What condescension to lay aside his own personal riches. Yet how often many Christians, and they do not want to give up their tithe and their offering unto the Lord, who gave it all up for them. They don't want to give it up. He took no account of those things when it came to redeeming your soul because he loved you. He loved you. And therefore, you and I, we should take no account of the things of this world. What do we own in comparison to Him? In fact, do we really own it? It's only given to us. We're stewards of it. And yet, we seem to want to cling to it. We want to amass it. We want to have more of it. And yet, He gave it up. It all up for us. One asteroid. 27 quintillion U.S. dollars. And he took no account of it because he thought you much, so much more precious than anything else. We are, I trust, beginning to understand the depths to which he descended. He made himself of no reputation, not by subtraction, not by emptying, but rather by addition. By taking to himself the form of a servant and being made in the likeness of a man. And that brings us to the second clause in verse 7, which is our second point. And took upon him the form of a servant. Now, there is an interesting construct in the Greek grammar of these opening words of verse 7, which let us know that it was the act of him taking upon himself the form of the servant that was the cause of making him of no reputation. He who was in the form of God took all of his deity and he poured it into another vessel, as it were, to be the form of a servant. The figure presented there in those words, it's similar to pouring water from a jug into a glass. He did not stop who, being who he is, but he became another form of who he is. Though that form was different, the substance remained the same. He took no accounts of the heights from which he came as he did this. You know, he did not repine, nor was the sovereign reluctant to become the servant that did not grieve him, though it brought him grief. He was not sorrowful in doing this, though he did become the man of sorrows because of it. He did it all for us, child of God, and this ought to knock every ounce of spiritual pride out of every one of us and humble us in adoring gratitude at his feet. 
He who is very God of very God became very slave of very slave. It's not wrong to interpret or translate that word servant as slave. It's a word that refers to one who has surrendered their rights to the will of another. It's a word that the Apostle Paul used in verse 1 of chapter 1. See, in the Greek, in the Greek culture, a, a doulos or a, a slave, a servant that referred to that involuntary permanent service of such an individual, it was the lowest position that a person could occupy in the Roman world. And that was the depths to which he descended. The lowest position, the king of the universe, the Lord of the glory, voluntarily became a servant in order to save us. Do you know Paul in his epistles, he always takes this word doulos, servant, and he elevates that word to the Hebrew sense. And that describes a servant who was willing and committed themselves to serve a master whom they love and respect. And Christ loved the Father. He respected the Father, and therefore He willingly and He lovingly, He became and was made and took unto Himself the form of a servant. The second person of the Trinity, He willingly and lovingly surrendered His rights to the Father in order that He would fill the office of a mediator the Son became a servant so that we who are slaves of sin might become the sons of God. Last time we noticed that the word form, it's the same word in verse 6 that we have in verse 7. It describes and refers to the nature or the character of something and it, it en emphasizes both the internal and the external. It refers to the outward display of the inward reality. And you see, Christ, Christ in His earthly ministry, He many times declared that He truly was the servant of the Lord. He declared it. And as such, that He was the Messiah. See, back in Isaiah 42... In the verse 1, we read, the Lord is speaking, and He says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, mine elect, in whom my soul delighteth. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. Those words are quoted in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 12, and the verse 18, and clearly there in reference to Jesus Christ. He declared a servant's heart in John 6, in the verse 38, For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. We sang this morning a portion from the 40th Psalm. It's quoted in Hebrews chapter 10. And the Lord said, I delight to do thy will, O my God. And it's because the Son of God took upon him the form of the servant that we can understand such portions in Scripture that might appear to suggest that he is inferior to the Father was as his role, as a mediator, that he became a servant. And this is how we're to understand passages such as John's Gospel 14 and verse 48. He said to his disciples, If you love me, you would rejoice because I said I go unto the Father, for my Father is greater than I. 
And also Matthew chapter 13 and verse 32, which speaks of Christ's second coming. He says, But of that day and that hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son but the Father, as the servant, as the mediator, he submitted himself to God his Father. Christ said to his disciples in Luke's Gospel 22 and verse 27, I am among you as he that serveth. Yes, he declared that he was a servant, but he also demonstrated it. He demonstrated it. It was the Lord of glory at the last Passover in John 13 that laid aside his outer garments to wrap himself in a towel that he might perform the duty of a slave and wash the disciples' feet. But even while he was washing the feet of his disciples, kneeling on the floor, he was still God before whose feet men and angels fall. Though he had the form of a servant, the whole scene could be viewed as symbolic of him who laid aside his royal robes of splendor and girded himself with the garb of a bondservant. One had to be laid aside if the other one was to be taken up. He did not descend to be ministered unto, but he came to minister and to give his life a ransom for the many. He came to serve the Father, and in doing that, he served mankind. The word minister, there when he says that he came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, it's from that root word that we get, the word deacon. Deacon. And it is an emphasis on personal service being rendered to another. It can be so strong to even suggest a service of love. Christ loved those to whom he ministered. And the greatest demonstration of service rendered by Christ and love, of course, was giving his life as a ransom for the many. And again, remember the burden of Paul's point here. Humility that leads to unity. You know, we declare ourselves to be the servants of the Lord, but do we demonstrate it? Do you demonstrate that you are a servant of the Lord? Are you willingly, voluntarily servants, slaves to the Lord and to one another? Do you render service out of love or out of duty? You're here in service this morning. Are you here out of duty? Or are you here out of love? You see, are we willing to do the lowly task, whatever it might be, to occupy the pew at night? Are we willing to go out and guard the car park? Are we willing to set the seats out or bring them in for the mothers and toddlers? Are we willing to do the lowly task, to be a slave, to be a servant for our God, the one who was in the form of God and yet He took upon him the form of a servant. Are you willing? Elizabeth Elliot, she asked, does God ask us to do what we might perceive as beneath us? The question will never trouble us again if we consider the Lord of heaven taking a towel and washing a disciple's feet. He took upon him the form of a servant. And for Christ to express himself as a servant, he needed to become man. And that brings me to our last point this morning. Because we see that he made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant. Last point, and was made in the likeness of men. He went right by the angels and became man. 
as Moses veiled his glory that shone from his face, so Emmanuel veiled the glory that came from his person with a true humanity. The words was made are a translation of a word meaning to become. In the tense of this verb, it signifies an entrance into a new state. The Son of God entered into a new state of being when He took to Himself a true humanity. And now forever, He is the God-man. That's a marvel. That's an absolute marvel of what happened when He was conceived of the womb of the Virgin Mary by the power of the Holy Ghost. It's an absolute marvel. He entered into a new state of being and now is forever the God-man. Two natures, divine and human, in one person and that forever. And we must be so careful when we talk about Christ as the God-man possessing those, these two natures. You see, He is without confusion. Christ is not the result of mixing the divine and the human to make a third nature. No, not at all. He is without change. He never ceased to be God. He is without division. Christ is not half God and half man. He is without separation. The union between the divine and the human in the person of Jesus Christ was a real union. It wasn't. It was not a, a partnership, but a vital union. Though there's a mystery to all this, there is a certainty because it's revealed to us in the Word of the living God. This is what He did. Here's the depths to which the Lord of glory, infinite, eternal, unchangeable, the boundless One, and yet there He is, made in the likeness of man, a human body, one locality, and yet there's the fullness of God dwelling in that man. Oh, the blessed thought of it. See, when it speaks of a likeness here, we're not simply to think that Christ had an appearance of a humanity like ours. The word likeness means that it was not just an appearance, but a reality. Christ had a real humanity, just as real as His deity. He was not a phantom. Colossians 1, 22, it speaks about the body of his flesh. Hebrews 2, verse 14, it teaches us that he partook of the same flesh and blood as you and I. He was a genuine man. He didn't walk around with a halo above his head. He didn't float above the ground, but he possessed all the attributes as a true man with a, re with a true body and a reasonable soul. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 3, Paul, he uses the same word likeness, but he adds this little detail when he's speaking of the very same thing. And he says here, there in Romans 8 and verse 3, God sending His own Son in the likeness, listen, of sinful flesh. Never puzzle you. What does that mean, in the likeness of sinful flesh? Well, it certainly doesn't mean that He was sinful. Rather, it means that the nature he took to himself, it felt all the effects of the fall without him never knowing or experiencing the sin of the fall, for he was that holy thing that was born of Mary. 
It was not a kind of pre-fall humanity that he received, but a post-fall humanity in that he could know and experience the things that he suffered. It's astounding. It's even beyond our comprehension that the Son of God would do that for sinners like you and me, that he would be made in the likeness of sinful flesh, that he would feel all the curse of the fall. As I heard Dr. Paisley once say, God's Son, in one of my favorite sermons that I've ever listened to, in the incarnation, the Son of God had His withdrawal into the flesh. And now we can say there is a man in the glory. Withdrawal into the flesh. And making Himself of no reputation by the addition by taking to himself a true humanity. He descended into the lowest parts of the earth as his human substance was formed from the womb of the Virgin Mary. And you know, being made in the likeness of men, it meant he accepted all the limitations of being a man. And that's why we read of him in Luke chapter 2 and verse 52, and and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. As a little child, he learned. Think about that, children. He learned. As a, a true child, he learned. His mother taught him. That's why we read of him tired and sorrowful and weeping and thirsting and pain. Even the way he was in Gethsemane as he recoiled as a true man from the darkness and the attrition of Calvary that laid before him. That's why we read of him as a man he had to experience every pain and temptation that we face in order that he might reverse the first Adam's failure and secure salvation for us. It also fits him to be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, one who is touched with the feelings of our infirmities, one who is able to sympathize and succor us in our times of need. This is what He was made for us. Therefore, brethren and sisters, may we be willing, may we be willing to be made the man and woman of God that He desires and wants us to be. This is what it's all about. This is the practical application of the Apostle Paul, that they would know and experience true humility that would foster and nourish their unity. You see, we as believers, we're called to unity. We're called to be one. We have one Lord. We have one faith. We have one baptism, one God and Father of all, one, one Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's the foundation of our unity. And we are to demonstrate to the world our love, the one for the other. And that love is born and is the product of a selfless humility. To quote B.B. Warfield again, he made this common Christ did not cultivate self. Oh, we're, we're so often wanting to cultivate, to elevate self. But Christ did not cultivate self, even His divine self. He took no account of self. He was led by his love for others into this world 
to forget himself and the needs of others. Self-sacrifice brought Christ into the world, and self-sacrifice will lead us, his followers, not away from, but into the midst of men. And to be among men. He made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Christ is our model of supreme humility. And if this mind be in us, we will be united. And there the blessing of God will abide. The heights from which he came corresponds proportionately to the depths to which he descended. Next time, Lord willing, from verse 8, we'll think about the lengths to which he went. And may the Lord bless his word to our hearts for his own name's sake and give us this humility in some measure that we see in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we have handled things of utmost importance, things of glory, things that go beyond our human comprehension, go beyond the descriptive language of any man, the powers of ordering. And yet, Lord, they are revealed in Holy Scripture. We believe them. We thank Thee for the one, the one who came from the heights of glory. And we thank Thee for the depths to which He descended. It was for us. And Lord, surely this should humble us and remove from us any tendency to self-elevation and pride because we have nothing to boast in. Pride we abase, for we're only as sinners saved by grace. We thank Thee for our Savior. And we pray that You would help us as Thy people to be like Him, conforming us more and more into His image and after His likeness. Not simply, Lord, in appearance only, but in reality. Lord, that the outward would be the expression of the inward, that truly we would have, like him, a servant's heart, that truly we would not give account to those things that the world places so much emphasis upon. But Lord, but help us to walk humbly with our God. Bless the word, Father. Bless thy dear people. Thank you for each and every one of them. And we pray, O oh God, that thou would speak to their hearts. Remember those amongst us. And these things, they mean nothing to them. Lord, they don't even ponder them. They'll, they'll come and go and they'll go out of this place and it will be as if it was wear water off a duck's back. And they think not what the Son of God did in order that He might redeem sinners. May you speak to them this morning. May you cause them to stop and, and to reason with Thee, O God, to use the faculties of the mind and the understanding and the hearing of the ear and the reading of the page of Scripture. May they use these things, O God, to come to a true understanding of who they are in Thy sight and what Christ has done for sinners. Lord, bless the Word. 
We pray that you'll bring us again this evening to thy house. Bless thy servant as you preach the word. Watch over us, Lord, and take us to our homes now in safety. And may the grace of the Lord Jesus, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Spirit be the portion of thy people now and forevermore. Hear our prayer. We ask these things in the Savior's precious and worthy name. Amen.